caused Tai Chi to go west? And was it like an exotic fruit starting to decay upon arrival? What role played the American Secret Services in opening up the practice to American audiences? And what legacy has the innovators of the 1960s left for us, bewildered and bemused practitioners of the 21st century? Find out on this week's episode of Talking Tai Chi with the Teapot Mook. Talking Tai Chi, and this week we conclude our three-part series on the history of Tai Chi Chuan, looking specifically at its exportation to the West. Perhaps I should start this week's episode by clarifying which aspect of the history of Tai Chi Chuan I am following here. If you haven't already guessed, it's the Yang variation, and specifically Cheng, as in Chen Man Ching. The reason well, there are so many variants, hybrids and distinct styles that I could spend the rest of the year tracing each and every separate history as the art left one country and headed to another, and such accounts would fundamentally not be that different, and ultimately would prove a little dull, if not for you, then certainly for me. So I'm tracing from here on in the movement as taken by Yang Chaohu, Yang Chenfu, Wu Qingchuan, and Sun Lutan whom have all contributed to its exportation overseas by emphasising benefits other than purely martial, a subject we shall return to again and again during this series of podcasts. Finally, we are tracing the Yang line for what Douglas Weil, in his excellent account of the Yang secret family transmissions, has written, quote, through Yang's own genius, the Yang style of Tai Chi Chuan established itself as the dominant internal system in China. It became the basis for the new simplified Tai Chi Chuan adopted in China in 1956, and in its 37 posture condensation by Chen Manqing became the major overseas manifestation. Unquote. So for those reasons, we are following the Yang line. But we are jumping ahead here. What we need to do is ask ourselves first, who began the process of moving it west? Some say it began when one of Yang Chenfu's sons, the late Yang Xuchong, brought the Yang style to Hong Kong. Then again, it has been said that a master, Choi Hok Pan, was the first proponent of Tai Chi Chuan in the United States and began teaching there as early as 1939. Whilst others have argued that it's not important who started teaching or when, but rather the repercussions that such teaching was to have in that country. And certainly one of the most famous of these immigrants was the master of five excellencies known as Chen Man Qing. It is said that Cheng studied with Yang Chenfu from around 1930 to about 1936. He is also said to have ghost written some of Yang Chenfu's work that was later published. 
and it's generally accepted that Chen was taught the most fundamental aspects of the Yang style. Opponents, however, of Cheng, his changes to the form and practice claim he was never really taught the secret transmissions and that he corrupted the art and taught only a diluted version to Westerners. Despite this petty squabble in between stylists, we know that Cheng had begun to teach Tai Chi in China and had begun to work on his famously abbreviated version of the form there. This many people mistakenly believe was developed by Chen for exclusively a Western audience because, so the rumour goes, Westerners lacked the attention span necessary to learn the long version of the form. This may of course be true about the infamous short attention span of Westerners, but it does not detract from the fact that Chen was already teaching his condensed version of the form before he left Taiwan. One of his Taiwan students was in fact a Westerner called Robert Smith, who was working in Taiwan on, let's call it, a political assignment for the USA. In 1964, Chen moved to the USA with the help of Robert Smith and began to teach Tai Chi in New York. Chen is remembered most controversially for the many changes he made to the form. Amongst these was the concept of swing and return, in which the momentum from one movement initiates the next. If you've ever seen his version of the Yang style, more accurately now known as the Cheng style, you will understand how this concept applies. If you have not seen the man perform, then do a quick search on YouTube and you will see a few classic black and white videos in which you can grasp the idea. But clearly it was not only Chen Manqing who brought Tai Chi to the West. Many other practitioners were beginning to teach in the USA, Canada and Europe at around the same time. We have already mentioned Choi Hopang, who had been teaching in San Francisco before Chen Manqing even arrived on the shores of the US. But Cheng became one of the most significant players in popularizing the art in the 1960s and affording it the special perspective and following that it enjoys today. Of course, Tai Chi in the 1960s was always going to be more openly embraced than at previous times, particularly by a growing alternative social scene. A scene that was to set about creating a dialogue with this new art that would account for a new shift and emphasis over the decades that followed. One example was the establishment of the Esalen Institute, which earned the support and participation of Alan Watts, the British philosopher, and the innovatory and charismatic Tai Chi teacher, Al Huang Jimlian. Such dialogues began the important process of adaptation and evolution that marks this style of Tai Chi even today. And the works of Alan Watts and Al Chuang still command a huge respect amongst many practitioners for their opening up of Chinese culture, arts and philosophy to the West. Their explanations and simple accounts of complex issues remain relevant, succinct and curiously timeless even 50 years later. So what was happening elsewhere? Well, in fact, one of Chen Manqing's students in Taiwan was a medical doctor called Dr. Qi Chengdao, who came to London in the 1970s 
and taught a John Kells at the British Tai Chi Chuan Association. In the Netherlands, Dr. Chi taught Kui Swan Hu, co-founder of the Dutch, Dutch Tai Chi Chuan Association there. But there are countless other stories of immigrants or travelers bringing into the West variations of this art during the latter half of the 20th century. But this is as far as we will be taking it today. And so we end our short history of Tai Chi Chuan, our three-part series. And as I said at the beginning, all history is partial and subjective. So if you feel I've unfairly left out relevant chunks appropriate to your style or your teacher, then apologies, but get used to it. That is the nature of storytelling. I'll place a few links to some videos and articles in the notes with this podcast. An interview with Cheng and some writings about Alan Watts, for those of you who are interested. And that's all for this week. Thanks again for listening. I'm hoping that the history of Tai Chi Chuan is now as clear as mud and that armed with such useful but disputable facts, you will feel empowered to challenge everyone and anyone about this most elusive of arts. Drop by next week when we continue the specifically monkish take on Tai Chi and start to dismantle and dissect some of the different styles of Tai Chi Chuan. Looking to discover what Tai Chi can do for you or curious and would like to know a little more? Well, just come over to 21stCenturyTaiChi.com. Look for the link in the show notes. There's short introductory courses, breathing, health, Tai Chi form, sword, philosophy applications and more. Plus books, PDFs and great videos and even music. Got a question? Track me down on social media as the Teapot Monk. Thanks for listening.